bless you and thank you so much as you give tonight. Thank you for joining us at LifePoint Church tonight. We're going to be talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how they operate in everyday life. Last Wednesday night, we talked about the first three, and tonight we're going to talk about the second three. We're not breaking them down in categories of the spoken gifts, the relevatory gifts, and the power gifts, as most people do. We're just taking them as they come in the order that we find them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you will take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 12, we will launch into this study, and we're going to do the second three tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To the one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. We covered that last week. To another, a message of knowledge or a word of knowledge. We talked about that last week. And to another, faith by that same Spirit. We talked about those three last week. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and faith. And tonight we're going to move into the next three, which is to another, continuing in verse 9, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. Verse 10, to another, miraculous powers. And then to another, prophecy. So we're going to deal with those three, healing, miracles, and prophecy tonight as we walk through how the gifts of the Spirit operate in everyday life. So let's start with healing. Healing. It's important to understand some groundwork about healing and some basic philosophical dynamics about healing. And I want you to, I want you to hear this because it's easy for me to say this, but it's difficult to walk these things out. So Hit the pause button on all your reading and all your stuff and just listen to me for a second because this is, this is very important. I've been in the ministry for going on four decades. I've seen a lot of people get sick. I've seen a lot of people healed. I've seen people healed over time. I've seen them healed instantly. We had a little boy when we were over at the Bright Star Road property, fell and broke his arm. Before they went to the doctor, and well, they went to the doctor and he x-rayed it and said, yep, it's broken, you've got to have a cast put on it. So come back tomorrow, we'll put a cast put on it. So they came back, and before they went to get the cast put on it, they stopped by the church. We're all there. And we laid hands on the little boy and prayed for him. He got to the doctor's office. They, they said, x-ray it again. The doctor said, okay. He x-rayed it again, and his arm was healed. And he could even see where the bone had grown back together. I mean, instant healing, just like that. It is very important for us to understand some things about how God operates in the realm of divine healing. Nothing touches our hearts more than when somebody we love gets sick or injured and we want to see them get well. Right now, I'm dealing with a friend of mine, Mike Roberts, who lives in Arkansas. He used to attend this church when he lived here. Uh, Still says that everything he knows and is credits to the ministry at this church. And he is a fine man of God. His wife, Nancy, has stage four cancer. The doctors have given her less than three months to live. Now, I want to see Nancy healed. I know Mike wants to see Nancy healed. I know Nancy wants to be healed. And so we've prayed and we've sought God and and we've done everything in the world, and yet her condition seems to deteriorate on an ongoing basis. So... How do we balance that with the times when we pray for somebody who's been given a, a year to live or six months to live or however long and, 
and all of a sudden the cancer just goes into remission and they recover and they live the rest of their lives without any recurrence of the disease and and yet some of the people that that seem to that god heals they're not really doing a whole lot of productive stuff for the kingdom of god yet he heals them and people that seem to be just working their brains out for him they they pass away uh, i think i think of J.R. Gould. i know that some of you that are in your uh, 20s and 30s think that 60 is old but the closer you get to 60 the younger it is J.R. went to bed on may the 7th in 2013 at 60 years of age and just never woke up um he built two, over 250 churches in Africa and was just on fire for God. And, and how, do we, how do we come to understand these things? How do we process through them? How do we come to a balance? We need to understand a couple of things. And one is this. All your life, remember this, no matter what you're dealing with, remember this, God has already proved his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Never question the love of God for you. No matter what happens in your life, Take your finger, go into the soul of your heart, go into the vault of your spirit, and take a chisel and a hammer and chisel into the stone and the bedrock of your very existence. God loves me. He proved it on Calvary. So never second-guess God's motive. We don't understand why God chooses to allow things to happen we don't understand why God doesn't do some things that we know he could do. We don't understand why God does certain things that he could not do. And I could go on and on with that. What we have to understand is this. God loves us, number one. Number two, in the grand scheme of eternity, now listen, this is important because you're going you're gonna to have to deal with stuff someday that you don't like. And stuff's going to come down the pipe of your life and it's going to hurt and you're going to cry out to God and God's going to be quiet and he's going to say no. And you're not going to understand what's going on and you're going to need this. This next five minutes is, is huge. So listen to me. We need to understand that in the grand scheme of eternity, Holy Spirit, help me say this the right way now, that God knows things we don't. God's judgments are far beyond ours. God's understanding of the whole dynamism of existence in a cosmic sense, both, both time and space, is far superior to any hope we ever have of understanding it. So we have to trust God in things that at this level make absolutely no sense to us. If a chihuahua walked up to the bottom of the Empire State Building and looked up at it. In his little mind, it's concrete. It's a place to throw his leg up and relieve himself. People go in and out. It makes noise. He sees light. He doesn't understand one thing about the financial institutions that conduct business there, the international businesses that conduct trade there. He doesn't understand any of the complexities of, of finance and interest and monetary exchange rates. He doesn't understand any of that. All he knows, big building, people in and out, place to pee. That's all he knows. Sometimes I think we look at life like a chihuahua looking at the Empire State Building. And then there's the whole world. The chihuahua knows nothing about any of the complexities or the higher issues that's going on. A, a dog will never go to Washington, D.C. 
crawl up to the Pentagon and hop up in a chair and sit there and want to discuss international demographic military strategies. The dog will go sniff in the grass at the Pentagon and try to find out if other dogs have been around there because that's where they're at. I kind of sometimes think that's about where we're at in terms of understanding all the stuff that God knows. I think he's that far above us. So it's almost like your three-year-old not understanding what's going on in the real world. It really is. So we have to understand that we need to trust God in the things that we don't know, and there's a lot we don't know. It's easy to say that. It's hard to do that. So number one, God loves us. Number two, we've got to trust God in the things that make no sense. Number three, when it comes to healing, we have to remember the scope of eternity. I had a pastor who was in the ministry a long time, very respected man, confide in me one time, and I won't call his name, but he confided in me. He said, Roland, I have never, never come to grips in my ministry, in my mind, in my heart personally. And he was an older man when he said this. He said, I've been in the ministry all my life. I've never understood completely the whole concept and the nature and the workings and the doctrine of healing and why God heals some people and why he doesn't. To me, it's very easy, and I'll talk about it at the end of this. And I'm not oversimplifying it. I'm not saying I got everything figured out. But I think with healing, there are just some things we're supposed to understand. One is that God loves us. Two is that we need to trust God in the things that we don't understand. And three is the scope of eternity. If we lined up this wall with Bibles stacked like this, facing the edges of the pages facing us, one on top of the other, and every page was a million years, and I've used this illustration before, every page was a million years, the first hundred-year slice of the first page in the bottom corner is our lives here. All the rest of those pages, when we've lived them all to the last corner over there, eternity will have just begun. The Bible says our lives down here are a mist, a vapor on the water. It appears for a little while, and then suddenly with the sunrise, it is gone. We've got to start seeing this life is really nothing more than the proving ground for the next life. We've got to start looking at life from an eternal perspective. This healing business causes a lot of people to stumble because God seems to heal some, and to some he says no. Uh, how many of you know who Catherine Kuhlman was back in the 1950s? You've heard of her? I'm not, I'm not saying anything about her, good or bad, yay or nay, approve or disapprove, because I don't know her. I didn't follow her ministry. I just know this about her. She allegedly had a great healing ministry, and she was, she was sort of the mentor to Benny Hinn, whom I do not follow at all. Um, but evidently, in some of her meetings, there were some true miraculous healings that took place. One time somebody asked her, Ms. Kuhlman, about how many people in your meetings get healed versus how many leave and don't get healed? Because she would tell you plainly, God doesn't heal everybody. And she said about half. About half get healed and about half don't. And the person said, how do you feel about that? And she said, I don't know how to feel about that because I've never understood it. Listen, it's not rocket science. It's faith. God says yes, no, and wait. And we don't understand stuff because we don't like it. That's what's wrong. We choose not to understand it because we don't want to understand it because if we understand it, then it might be true. The fact of the matter is it is true. Sometimes God says no, and he lets perfectly perfectly wonderful, spiritually mature, gifted people die sooner than we think they ought to, and it vexes us. So we don't understand it. 
Because if we understand it, then we have to acquiesce to its reality and its truth. And that's hard for us. Let me tell you something now. Listen to me. Get your head wrapped around this healing thing before somebody you love dies and you want to get mad at God. Because the one thing you can't ever do is get mad at God. All right? That, that never works. So let's talk about it from the perspective of, and I could go on and on with that, but I want to talk about healing from the perspective of how does it operate in everyday life. Most of the healings that you see nowadays, miraculous healings take place in church. I think Christians, the Christian community in America has come to the place where we expect the miraculous to happen in church. We don't expect it to happen outside the church. And to me, that's cognitive spiritual dissonance. If you look at the Bible, my first point says Jesus and the apostles healed many more people in the street than in the synagogue. And that's true. In the New Testament, which should be our pattern, most of the miracles Jesus did did not happen in the Jewish synagogue or in a home church. They happened out in the street, out in the marketplace, out in the field. I can start naming miracles one after the other, after the other, after the other, and every one of them will will have happened outside the church house. That's the way I believe God intended healing to be. Most of the people Jesus healed were healed in the street and in the marketplace. That should be a big hint to us. Now, don't raise your hand. I don't want to, I'm not putting anybody on the spot. But if you've, ever, if you've ever been in the room at the very moment when somebody died or, or been in the room shortly after or come to the morgue shortly after and, and seen them lying in state, uh, don't answer. But let me just ask you, don't answer. Did you pray for God to raise them from the dead? Most of us would have to say, no, I did not. Well, I normally do. I don't always jump up and down and get loud and, and, and jump up, straddle the bed and scream and holler and pour oil on them. But I do say, Father, if it be your will, I ask you to raise this person from the dead. If I die and you're there before they put me in the ground, I want you to pray they raise me from the dead. Why do we think God did it in the New Testament, but he can't do it now? Benson Idahosa is a pastor in Africa who, who has been documented by physicians. He is... God, through him, has raised 27 people from the dead in Africa through his ministry. I can't verify that, but that's what, that's what the uh, historians and the physicians and the people who document these things, what they say, 27 people. Why do we expect those things to happen in Africa but not in America? Why do we read about them in the New Testament and it builds our faith, but when somebody talks about it here in America happening in the street, we want to scratch our head and question it and raise an eyebrow and wonder if it's legitimate. It's because I think our faith has been damaged over the years through primarily offenses in the church, offenses with uh, spiritual leadership in, in high places and sometimes high visibility. I think, I think our own faith as the, as the people of God has, been, has suffered damage. I do. And I think when we come into the church, we feel secure because we're surrounded by like-minded believers. We're in the church. We're, we're amongst the, our own kind. And we think, man, we can get together and pray. God can do great things. But listen, the same God who operates in here corporately can operate through you singularly out there in the marketplace. Amen? Don't be afraid to ask God for a miracle yourself. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to carry an ordination card. You don't have to have credentials. You don't have to be in a position of leadership. You simply have to be a Christian and have faith. That's it. Jesus did not carry a card belonging to any organization. Peter, 
didn't carry a card belonging to any organization. Paul, none of them. They just loved God and believed God. The second thing I wrote down is healing is one of the four cardinal doctrines. The four cardinal doctrines are salvation, baptism in the Holy Spirit, healing, and the second coming. Those are what's called the four cardinal doctrines. Let me say a word about doctrine. Everybody should study doctrine. Doctrine is not what does the Assemblies of God believe? What do the Baptists believe? What do the Methodists believe? That's dogma. That's creed. Doctrine is what does the Bible say? That's what true doctrine is. What are the, and I don't care what any school you've gone to wants to parse this word up. Doctrine is what the Bible teaches. Dogma is what man has interpreted that to mean. So everybody should be a student of doctrine. Doctrine's basically what we believe and why we believe it. What does the Bible actually say? That's doctrine. You should know it. So the four cardinal doctrines are salvation, uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit, divine healing, and the second coming of Christ. The second coming, by the way, when you hear that term in the Assemblies of God, just for clarification, the second coming of Christ is a two-part event in Assemblies of God dogma and creed. We believe that the second coming is, number one, the rapture, when Jesus comes and we meet him in the air, he does not come to the earth. He comes to the air. We rise to meet him in the air. Then we go away for seven years. Then he comes back with us, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. It splits. A river flows out of it. He fights the battle of Armageddon. And then he, he, he binds Satan for a thousand years, sets up his millennial kingdom where he rules from Jerusalem. And for a thousand years, that's the millennial reign. And that's the second half of the second coming. So the second coming of Christ is two parts First the rapture, and then literally the second coming when he comes all the way to earth and sets up his kingdom for a thousand years. Now, the next thing that I wrote down here is that healing was paid for in the atonement. When we talk about healing, we're talking about something that Jesus' blood on the cross paid for. The atonement, when Jesus died and his, his blood poured down the cross and down Calvary, he atoned for our sins. He he covered our sins. He paid the price for our sins. That's what atonement means. Boy, you got to atone for your wrongdoing. You got you to pay for it. You got to pay the price for it. That's what atonement means. Well, Jesus paid the price for our sins. Included in that was the price for our healing. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So healing was paid for in the atonement. You don't have to earn it. You don't have, you don't have to buy it. You can't, you can't somehow work it up. It's a gift from God, and it's paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And lastly, the, the way that healing works in everyday life is that if we go out in the street and we begin to pray for people or go to the hospital and there's somebody going to the surgery, go pray for them. And wouldn't it be great if, if you go to the hospital and just empty the thing out? Wouldn't that be incredible? You know, I'm amazed that Jesus was on the earth. And here's some things for us to think about in this balance of understanding healing. I, I want to deal with this because it's a complex issue for a lot of people. Jesus was on the earth 33 and a half years. He only raised three people from the dead. He could have raised multitudes. Jesus showed up at the pool of Bethesda. And the Bible says that there were people all around the pool because the legend said once a year, the waters would become troubled. An angel would come down and trouble the waters. And when that happened, the first person in the water, they were healed. 
Now, that was a legend. We don't know if that was true or not, but that was what all the crippled people and all the lame people, all the, all the people that could get there, that's what they believed. So the, the, the pool was surrounded by afflicted people. Jesus shows up. How many people does he heal? One. Why didn't he heal them all? I don't know. Well, I, I want to know why God let the Nazis do what they did. And we think they're bad. They're nothing compared to Joseph Stalin. The Nazis and Hitler killed about 6 million people. Joseph Stalin killed 20 million. And Joseph Stalin's nothing compared to Genghis Khan. Nobody knows how many people he killed. Probably 60 to 100 million, maybe more. Most ruthless man that's ever been on the earth. Why didn't God just vaporize him? I don't understand why God doesn't send a a DNA strand plague to ISIS and just melt them all. I don't understand. We, We have lots of things that we don't understand why God doesn't do this. You know what? He gets to be God and we don't. He gets to make these choices and we don't get to second guess him. And that's important. But healing is a powerful testimony to an unspiritual world. If we go out here in the street and we start praying for somebody and they get healed, man, that's a powerful testimony. Now, let me tell you a story. And this happened to me and I was there and I saw it. And it was one of the most amazing miracles I've ever seen. It was me and two of my friends were deer hunting. And one of my friends got his truck stuck in a mud hole. It was cold. The water in the mud hole was cold. The mud was cold. It was just cold. Dreary, rainy day. Got his truck stuck in the mud. So we're down there trying to work some, some stuff and figure out what's going on underneath the truck. He puts his hand in the mud hole, and I grabbed a hole to a, to a limb, and I pulled on this limb, and he just started screaming. And so I let go of the limb, and he stopped screaming. I grabbed the limb and pulled it. He started screaming. I let go of the limb. He started screaming. He said, don't pull up on it. Push down on it. I pushed down on it. He started screaming. No matter what I did with the limb, he would scream. I didn't know if some creature had him, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon. I didn't know what was down there. Every time I touched that limb, he would scream. Well, we dug around and dug around and come to find out. And, of course, from the first time I grabbed that thing, I wrenched on it. You know, me and the other friend grabbed a hold of a big old limb. We both grabbed a hold of it, and we just yanked on him. Boy, my buddy, he almost passed out. He's screaming the whole time, don't touch it, don't touch it. You know, popped out in a sweat, white, he just screaming. Finally, we got the whole thing up, and what had happened is the limb was split in the middle, and he stuck his finger in that split. So no matter how we moved it, that wood that was split would tighten down on that finger, no matter how we moved it. When he brought his finger up out of that split wood, his whole finger was not, it was not an eighth of an inch thick. It was just as flat as anything I've ever seen. I thought, man, you're going to lose. I thought you're going to lose the tip of your finger. And the Lord spoke to me. I'm just telling you, the Lord spoke to me and said, grab some mud. And I thought about the scripture of Jesus taking spit, making mud, putting it on the man's eyes. Grab some mud, wrap it around his finger and pray right now. I said, give me your hand. He said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I said, trust me, give me your hand. I grabbed a handful of cold mud very gently. I put it around his finger and I prayed. I said, now rinse the mud off. He rinsed the mud off, and his finger was just as normal as mine instantly, instantly. No broken bones, didn't even lose the fingernail, never even turned blue. And it just about mashed the end of his finger off. I know for a fact 
God healed him. My dad was in a church service years and years ago before I was born. And you know what a goiter is? A woman's neck gets, or a man's neck has a big flesh thing hanging way down here. It looks, it looks very terrible. And it's embarrassing for the people and un- uncomfortable for the people who have them. And I don't really know medically much about them, but I know they just are big bulge hanging up under your, under your chin like your neck just swole out like a, like a watermelon. And Daddy said this 16-year-old girl, everybody at school laughed at her, made fun of her because she had a big goiter, and she went to a, a service, and there was an evangelist. And he grabbed a hold of that girl and said, in the name of Jesus, I command this goiter to just shrink down. And Daddy said it was like you took a pencil or a pen and stuck it in a balloon, and that goiter went, and her neck was just as normal as anybody else's instantly. Now, see, that's powerful stuff. The difference between those two examples is this. One of them happened in the altar of a church where we expect it to happen. The other one happened in the middle of the woods on Caps Ferry Road over here in a big mud hole where we don't expect it to happen. Nevertheless, both are legitimate miracles. But the one that happens in the marketplace with the guys out in the wood, that's the one that's going to impact people more than any other. So my word to us is how does healing operate in everyday life? It operates in direct proportion to our willingness to pray in the moment. It happens, it works in direct proportion to our willingness to believe God, to do stuff outside the church walls. It happens in direct proportion to our faith to trust God that he's going to hold up his end of the bargain if we hold ours up. We want to hedge our bets because we're afraid we'll pray and God will say no and we'll be embarrassed. It is not about us. We've got to understand this is about God, and he's big enough and man enough and God enough to defend himself and prove right by who he is. And in that moment, if God wants to say no, that's his choice. When God does heal, we don't take credit anyway. So it's God if he doesn't heal. It's God if he does heal. Amen? So why should we be afraid to pray? Because we're afraid of people's opinions. We're afraid people will think we're a false prophet. We're afraid people will, will, will say something behind our backs. If we, and I'm not saying embarrass yourself and run up to the next funeral and fling open the closed casket and lay your hand on the corpse. You know, I'm not saying to do that. But I am saying we need to start praying about how it looks and how it feels to live out this Christian life outside these four walls, not just in what we say we believe and in our lifestyle of trying to be obedient to God, but how about the, the nine gifts of the Spirit? Let's let them be demonstrated out in the marketplace. You know, Luke wrote a book to his friend Theophilus in the New Testament. I love the name of the book. It's simply called The Acts of the Apostles. It's not called The Belief of the Apostles. It's not called The Church Attendance of the Apostles. It's not called The Biblical Position Papers of the Apostles. It's not called The Opinion of the Apostles. It's called The Acts. And almost everything they did was outside the synagogue, outside the church, outside the house groups, out in the common man marketplace. We need to start thinking about moving with the power of God in places besides just the church. So that's how healing, in my mind, operates in everyday life. Secondly, miracles. Let's, let's talk about miracles. Uh, raise your hand. How many of you believe God still does miracles? Raise your hand. That's good, because I can tell you this about miracles. If you don't believe God's still in the miracle business, you'll never get one. Miracles happen only by faith. A miracle is when God 
does something supernatural that could not possibly be explained by natural law. Supernatural. You know, I always get tickled at these these movies and these shows that try to explain away the, the exodus and the, the crossing of the Red Sea. You know, the one old guy, you're, I've told you this before, and you've heard it, but it's still true. You know, one guy said, well, the Red Sea where they crossed was only ankle deep. Well, that's interesting. How did Pharaoh's entire army drown in ankle deep water? You know, it's just common sense stuff. Well, these plagues, you know, they would, they would ordinarily come one after another. If you just did a scientific study, one plague would beget the next plague. What's wrong with that? Nobody, nobody said they shouldn't be that way. But I tell you what, it's hard to explain darkness covering the land, and it's hard to explain the firstborn of, of Egypt dying and not the firstborn of Israel dying. Pretty hard to explain that one. Miracles. Miracles here and faith that we studied last week work together. I believe that miracles and faith are listed in this grouping of the gifts of the Spirit, nine gifts of the Spirit. I believe faith and miracles are listed in these nine gifts because faith, that miraculous faith God gives us in the moment of need, is what precipitates the miracle that we want. I think in order to have the miracle, you need the faith operative in your life. Now, I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal, but I tell these stories because I'm the only one that I know stories like this about. So this isn't to make me look like some super spiritual person. It just happened, and again, God gets the glory. Amen? I'll tell you this before, and I even put a picture up of that incredible lightning storm, but, but Doug and I were on a, a metal boat, and I had told him, man, let's don't go out on the lake. Man, let's go, let's go, let's don't go, let's go. So I finally said, all right, we're going to go, but we're going to be sorry we went. Went out on the lake. I kid you not, worst lightning storm I've ever seen in my life. It starts coming at us across the lake. There wasn't a place you could put your hand on the horizon that there wasn't lightning coming down from the sky to the water. I'm talking about bolts of lightning. Look, they were as wide as this building. I've never seen anything, anything like it. We stopped duck hunting and just went, oh, my God. You know, it was just incredible. We're in a metal boat in a metal blind holding metal shotguns. And this lightning storm from hell is just churning across the water. Wind's blowing in our faces, coming right at us. I don't know what came over me. I guess it might have been actually the Holy Spirit or something. Maybe some faith. I don't know. Maybe I just remembered that God does miracles. I stood up in the boat, pointed my hands at the storm, and I said, Father God, in the mighty name of Jesus, I command this storm to go around us. And I say that not one drop of water, not one lightning bolt is going to come anywhere near us. I speak this done in Jesus' name. I kid you not, if I had to die this minute, immediately a 40 mile an hour wind white cap in the water stopped and the wind reversed direction started blowing at, at the back of our neck Doug looked at me and said prophet you feel that i said yes i do that's god that storm split right in half half went around that side of the lake half a lightning popping the whole time you could smell the ozone went around other half went around that side of the lake seven drops of water hit all around our boat none of them hit the boat or us seven drops of water the cloud got back together on the other side of the lake and kept on going and never came close to us. I believe with all my heart that was an absolute miracle of God. And it didn't happen in the church because most miracles really can't happen in the church. They happen out there in nature like walking on the water. Hard to do that in the church. Hard to calm, calm the, the, the Sea of Galilee in the church. Hard to have a lightning storm split and, and go around you in the church. You see what I'm saying? Miracles, they happen outside the church too. But that faith, that faith has to be there. 
Miracles here and faith earlier work together. Secondly, we've got to learn to rely on God in impossible situations. Now, now I know God gave us a brain, and if your car breaks down in the middle of Texas and you don't know anything about cars, I guess all you can do is lay your hand on the hood and pray for an angel mechanic to come and heal your car. But you might also want to pick up your phone and call the nearest mechanic shop or get your trusty roadside insurance towing service to take you to the nearest garage. Sometimes, sometimes God does miracles for us because we truly need them. And I think sometimes God laughs at us because we are ill-prepared for situations. If the grid goes down in America, how many people you think are truly prepared to go up to the mountains of North Carolina and survive for the rest of their lives in the out-of-doors with no electricity, no supermarkets, no infrastructure, just out in the woods, out in nature, survive how many people in america do you suppose really have those skills and yet from the bible's prophetic word we know these times are going to come and yet we 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 find all kinds of excuses mostly intellectual laziness not to watch the videos not to study the stuff not to go out here and buy the gear not to go out here and practice the skills until you hone them to perfection I tell you what, man, you can watch videos about a bow drill fire all your life. If you don't go make a bow drill set and do one yourself, you know nothing about bow drills because you've got to own that skill and you've got to practice it. And that's, that's true about trapping. It's true about primitive shelter, not tying. You just, people just think they know stuff. When it comes really down to how exactly do you do that, they don't know. There is very specific, detailed information you must have or it won't work. It just won't work. And people want to just put up mental blocks. Oh, that's all. I just can't. I just can't go there in my mind, you know. If the grid goes down, you're going to die. I'm just telling you. If the grid goes down and you don't know survival skills, you are going to die. The food in your house is not going to last. There's going to be civil war in Atlanta, Georgia. And as soon as they get through killing each other and eating everything there, in about three weeks, they're going to be right here. If you don't know how to survive out there, you're going to die. Your whole family's going to die. Nobody wants to know that. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to think about that. We just want to think and believe that our lives are going to go on like they always have before. We don't want to hear this stuff. We want to pretend it's just this way and it's going to be this way. And you know what? I hope it is. I pray and hope the grid never goes down. We never see society collapse. I pray to God it's true. But if it happens... How many people are willing to pay the price now while you've got time and money and opportunity to learn it and to buy a few pieces of gear to prepare yourself? Why would you not? Why would you not? It's because we want to just rely on God. And the same people that say, oh, you don't have to learn all that. Don't you trust God? Don't you trust God to provide? Well, why do you have health insurance if you've got so much faith in God? How come you've got life insurance if you've got that kind of faith in God? How come you've got a fire extinguisher hanging on that wall over there if you've got that much? I could go on and on, you see. How come you've got Motrin in your house if your face is that level? Or Zycam or anything else? How come you've got Band-Aids? You don't need none of that if your faith is that kind of faith. You see what I'm saying? We, we understand insurance and, and health and and. and Car insurance and all these things, house insurance, in case something happens, in case something happens. We've got to have all this stuff. It's all pretend we've got to have because of the civilization we live in. The stuff that's really important that will help you stay alive and keep your family alive. People think, we don't need to learn all that stuff. Electricity went off at my house last night for about two hours. And uh, it didn't bother me. I mean, I wanted it to come back on because the house started warming up, but 
I learned a long time ago, if you just relax and chill out, your body will acclimate pretty quickly to temperature. We didn't have, we didn't have Wi-Fi for two hours. <gasps> so Donna and Samantha got out and walked down the street. We wanted to find out if it was something just at our house or our neighbor's house. And in the back of Donna's mind, she wanted to know if it was worldwide, <laughs> or at least nationwide. I said, what if this, what if they never come back on? She's like, rolling, rolling. So we learn to rely on God in impossible situations. But let me tell you something. We also need to learn some stuff ourselves because God gave us a brain to learn them. Amen. This is the gift that manifests when God chooses. We cannot mandate miracles. We cannot demand that God do the miraculous. We cannot, we cannot twist God's arm. We cannot force him. We cannot mandate miracles. Miracles are a sovereign move of God. Now, that's for sure. There is no formula for miracles. There is no guarantee. There is no ATM where you punch in the right code, you get your miracle. And I'm sorry, but the televangelist that tells you to plant a seed of $1,000 and you're going to get your miracle, he will lie to you about other things too. Whether you get a miracle or not depends on whether God chooses to do a miracle for you and whether your faith is in the right place to get that miracle. It has nothing to do with the televangelist and your money. There is no formula for this. It is based on relationship and God's will. Miracles are based on two things, relationship with God and God's will for your life. God did incredible miracles in the life of Moses. I mean, one miracle after another, you know, the miraculous ten plagues, the, fire of, the, the pillar of cloud, uh, pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, uh, the, the, the sandstorms, the splitting of the Red Sea, and then the destruction of Pharaoh's army. Uh, then the quail coming into the camp, uh, water in the, in the dry desert. I could go on and on and on listing the miracles God did for national Israel under the leadership of Moses. And he even, he even let Moses see the back of him as he passed by. I mean, think about that. God called Moses his friend. Think about that. I'm a friend of God. I know that's a cute little song, but God actually said that of Moses. He's my friend. I speak to him face to face, not in riddles like with other people. Man. So relationship. I know Joshua prayed for God to do a miracle, and the sun stood still. And then it went back up the stairs. I could go on and on. But it's based on our relationship with God at that time of our lives. And it is based on God's will, both his prevenient, as it were, pervasive will and his specific will for our lives there is a will of god for the whole world right and then there's there are different kind of strata of the will of god there's the will of god for the world we know it's how it's going to turn out in scripture underneath the will of god for the whole world there there's the will of god for nations and tribes and peoples and even families and even individuals and based on our relationship with god how we're walking with him how we're obeying him how we're how we're finding our way in his will and based on his sovereignty in the will of God, it determines whether miracles happen or not. In everyday life, how does this thing impact? Miracles change circumstances, miracles change people, and miracles save lives. When it comes to miracles, almost anything is possible. One of the most amazing miracles I ever heard of was from a missionary, and I don't know where this happened, but it was some faraway country. I believe it was India. But a missionary was there, and there was a man-eating tiger. 
been terrorizing a local village. And so the missionary, along with some locals, went out to kill the tiger. Well, tigers are much bigger than even lions. And uh, above all things, you don't want tigers after you. The legend is that if you injure, significantly injure, a Bengal tiger or a Siberian tiger, they will follow you anywhere on that continent until they find you to kill you. You have to leave the continent or kill the tiger. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's been a legend I heard since I was a little boy. Anyway, tigers basically, suffice it to say, are ferocious and even possibly vindictive animals. Well, this tiger, the people are in the bush. They're banging the pots. They're making noise. This tiger bursts out of the bush, and he heads straight for this missionary, American missionary. American missionary is older. He can't outrun the tiger. The tiger is almost on him. He throws his hands up and prays. Now, this is the story. I wasn't there. I can't verify it or validate it, but this is the story I heard. There was not a cloud in the sky, not one clear blue bluebird day, and lightning struck that tiger out of a clear blue sky and killed it instantly in in mid-stride, and it fell over and died. And, of course, all the villagers who were with him that day gave their lives to Christ and knelt down in the field. That's, that's the way I heard the story. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's within the realm of possibility for miracles. Stop and think about what it took for God to make the sun stand still when Joshua was fighting. You know, Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms, Joshua's out there fighting, and the sun stands still. What did that take? Maybe God stopped the entire solar system he stopped the entire revolution of the sun or the earth around the sun. Stopped the entire rotation of the earth. Who knows what it took, but God did it. When Joshua prayed and the Lord made the sun go back up the steps, seven or ten steps or how many it was, think about what that took. You're talking about cosmic moving of planets and solar systems. Maybe the entire galaxy had to shift for that moment. We don't even know. The fact of the matter is, Anything is possible in the realm of the miraculous. Now, either God does miracles or God doesn't. I know he does. The only question is, is our faith big enough? The question is not, is God big enough? The question is, is our God big enough? Do we serve a God who's just small enough to fit in here, and this is the prayer he stays, and this is where he does stuff? Or is our God big enough to fill the whole world, big enough to fill the whole solar system, big enough to fill the whole universe, big enough to give us a job and give us favor with men and institutions when we're getting bad news every other phone call? When somebody says, I want somebody to pay cash for my house, and then all of a sudden you get a phone call, somebody makes a cash offer for your house. These are the kind of things God does. I want to, before we go into other stuff, I want, I want to remind you of this sequence of events that happened in the Gospels. Okay? Jesus is walking down the road because Jairus has said to him, Master, my daughter is dying. If you will come to my house and lay your hand on my daughter, she will live. En route... A little woman comes up behind Jesus who has an issue of blood. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's been to every doctor she can find. She just got worse. She says to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. 
She presses through the crowd. She touches his clothes, and immediately she's healed. A little while later, a centurion comes up to Jesus and says, My servant's at home. He's very sick. He's dying. But you don't have to come to my house. You don't have to do anything. Because you're a man of authority. You say to this one, go when he goes. You say to that one, go when he goes. Because I'm a man under authority. I give orders. People do what I say. I'm paraphrasing. He said, all you have to do is say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus said to him, go, your servant will be healed. At that, And, and, and the man went. Jesus got to Jairus' house. The mourners were there. The little daughter was dead. Everybody was doing the... And when they say mourners, they were paid. You understand how the Middle East operates back then. They, they were paid mourners. They weren't really sorrowful. They were paid to go stand around the house and wail and mourn to, to make it look more serious and more severe. And I can prove it. As soon as Jesus showed up and said, the little girl's not dead, she's asleep, they all laughed at him. If they were really brokenhearted, they wouldn't be laughing. So Jesus shows up, goes in Jairus' house, lays his hand on the little girl, and she comes back to life. Now, look at that. Look at those three events for a minute. Every one of them happened at the exact place of the believer's faith. Every one of them. Jairus' little girl would have been buried and never heard from again unless Jesus went to the house and touched her. That was where Jairus' faith was. His faith said, if you come to my house and touch her, she'll live. If the little woman with the blood couldn't have made her way to Jesus and touched his cloak, she'd have bled to death or kept bleeding until she died of old age, whatever. She'd have never been healed. But she had to fight her way through and touch his clothes because that's what her faith statement to herself was. She said to herself, Mark, the, the book of Mark, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Now, who, who knows? Who knows? What if, what if she decided a different point of contact for faith? What if she said, if I can just see him? I'll be healed. If she believed that, I believe if she could just see him, that's where her faith. God met these people, every one of them, at the point of their own faith. And then the centurion. And Jesus used a word he only used once. Once? Once. He said he was astonished at this man's faith. I've not found faith like this in all of Israel, he said. Because the centurion said, you don't have to do anything, just say the word. And Jesus said the word. The centurion went home and his servant was healed that very hour. Jairus, come to my house, touch my daughter. Woman with the issue of blood, touch your clothes. Centurion, just say the word. See, God met all three of these people at the point of their own faith. Maybe it's exactly that way right now for all of us. Why can't we all decide we're going to have the faith of the centurion? And we're going to say... God, I'm going to take you at your word because you wrote it in the word. I'm going to believe it. You don't have to do anything. You said the word, I'm going to believe it, and it's going to happen. That's something powerful to think about. All right, last one. We're going to close with this, prophecy. We move into a different kind of gift. This is one of the spoken gifts. Um, the other two are, are, are power gifts. Faith and miracles and healing are the power gifts. Uh, word of faith, uh, uh, word of knowledge, word of wisdom. Uh, these are relevatory gifts and discernment, relevatory gifts, gifts of revelation. But this is one of the spoken gifts, prophecy. Here's some things I want you to know about prophecy. Number one, prophecy is foretelling 
and it is forth-telling. Biblically, according to the biblical definition, what I'm doing right now is prophecy. I am forth-telling, thus saith the Lord. This is prophecy. You know, a lot of the guys in the church called me prophet for a long, long time, and a lot of people, I think, got offended by that. But they didn't know where the story came from. I'll tell you, I'll tell you how all that started. When I first got here, I mean, I wasn't here a week as the pastor. We were driving down the road in my old pickup truck. I had an old beat-up pickup truck. We're driving down the road in this truck, and a wasp came into the window of the truck. Well, I hate wasps. I hate anything that stings and flies. This thing buzzed around, and I saw this thing, and I looked at it, and I said, I curse you in the name of Jesus, and you just have to die right now. And I was kind of halfway joking, but I really didn't like the wasp. As God is my witness, that thing went and landed on that little hump between the seats and, and just withered up and died and never moved again. And the guy, the guy said, my Lord, he's a prophet, and it just stuck because I spoke a word, and it took place, all right? But prophecy is telling the future. It's also telling the truth. It's foretelling, and it's forthtelling. Uh, there are a lot of ex- examples in the Bible of forthtelling. Uh, when somebody is prophesying, they're not just telling the future. They're, they're telling what is so from a perspective of, of God's divine word. When somebody in church gives a message in tongues and then there's an interpretation, the interpretation of that message is equivalent with prophecy. It is forthtelling by the Holy Spirit's power what God wants us to know. So those are the two definitions of prophecy. Number two, true prophets hold fast to correct biblical doctrine. The first sign that a prophet is a true prophet is not whether his prophecy comes to pass. It is whether he holds fast to the doctrine of the Word of God. I can tell you about one prophet in the Bible that prophesied something, and in a sense, it didn't come to pass. And yet he is universally regarded as a true prophet of God because in a sense, based on what he said, you could argue it either way. But Jonah, Jonah went to Nineveh. He walked through the streets prophesying to Nineveh, repent and turn from your wicked ways. If you don't, God's going to strike this city and destroy it. Now, I guess Jonah just didn't believe that was going to happen. Because when God didn't destroy Nineveh, because they all repented from the king to the least of them, they listened to Jonah's prophecy, his foretelling, and they heard the foretelling. He did both. Repent, that's prophetic, foretelling. Because if you don't repent, God's going to destroy the city. That's foretelling. Well, they repented and God didn't destroy the city. Made Jonah so mad, he prayed for God to let him die. But, in a sense, what he said was going to happen didn't happen. Because sometimes we can prophesy things, but it is still within the realm of human choice to alter the course of future events. Nineveh had a choice. They could repent and God would not destroy the city. They could continue to rebel against God and he was going to destroy the city. So based on their choice, the future, two different disparate paths could be chosen based on their choice as, as a city, as a people. So prophecy is foretelling and it's foretelling and true prophets hold fast to doctrines. Thirdly, true prophets don't miss it. Had a person come to our church when we were at Bright Star Road many years ago. And she said, I'm going to, they got through singing, and she said, I'm going to operate in the gifts of the Spirit for a few minutes, and I'm going to do some prophesying. And you know what? If I miss it, that's okay. I almost choked. It's never okay when we say, thus saith the Lord, and God didn't speak. 
you don't just miss God's will and speak the thus saith the Lord and God hadn't said it and then say that's okay. It's not okay. So after they left the next Sunday, I got up and I had to fix that. That's one of the reasons I quit having so many guests from outside. Almost every time I'd have somebody that I didn't know that well come and preach, I'd have to get up and fix something. And it always caused people issues. So true prophets don't miss it. They don't miss it. They don't prophesy over you. The Lord is telling me, and listen, let me just, while I'm on that, let me just say this as I close. We look for patterns in Scripture, okay? Demonstrable, patternable series of teachings and events and manifestations that we can say, based on the pattern of this revealed in Scripture, here's the way God operates in that vein. With prophecy, the vast majority of the time, it is for the whole of the church, especially the spoken word of prophecy. It is for the whole of the church. That's the rule. That's the majority. The exception is personal prophecy. You search the scriptures in the New Testament, you'll find very few cases of personal prophetic words from one person to another. Very few. They're there, but there are not many. So that leads me to believe that the that the vast majority of prophetic utterances are for the body of believers. And there are a few rare examples where they are for personal individuals. And I still believe that. So when somebody starts, you go to them, and it, is, it seems so spiritual. It just seems so anointed. The music is playing. People are walking around in their prayerful posture. They're worshiping. Soft music's going on. And the pastor's up here. He lays hands. The Lord says, thus saith the Lord. And the Lord is showing me that you've got this in your life. And the person says, oh, it just seems so powerful. And in me, Roman candles and red flares and warning bells are going off every time I get in a situation like that. Because I know that that's, that's the very rare exception. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying you find yourself in that. Lord, help be careful, people. Really be careful. All right. Prophecy is considered the best gift. Jesus even said this. Or Paul, uh, the Spirit of God said it through Paul. He said, eagerly desire the best gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So I don't know why, but God has chosen prophecy to be the best gift. So everybody here should be praying for the gift of prophecy. Every one of you should. Paul says, eagerly desire the best gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. That's what Paul commanded us all to do. So if you don't have the gift of prophecy, you ought to be praying for it. Prophecy is equal in importance Based on Scripture now, this is my opinion, this is right out of 1 Corinthians. Prophecy is equal in importance by a message in tongues when there is an interpretation. When there's an interpretation, they're equal. Okay? That's right, right, right out of what Paul said. So pray for the gift of tongues. Pray for the gift of interpretation. Pray for the gift of prophecy. For these spoken word gifts are very important to God. And I can tell you why. God operates by the power of the spoken word. He created everything that is by the power of the spoken word. You go back and do a research of all the miracles in the Bible, almost every one of them happened, with rare exceptions, when somebody spoke words. Our words are incredibly powerful. The Bible says life and death are in the power of the tongue. Those that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. The Bible says we will be judged by every single word we say. The Bible says that fresh and salt water cannot flow from the same spring. The Bible tells us that in the very end of all things, we will give an account of every, every idle or careless word we've spoken, And the Bible tells us that by our words we're justified and by our words we're condemned. So God has chosen these three spoken gifts because the spoken word is so important to God. He operates based on, I I believe that faith is released by what we say. I do, I believe that. Uh, 
There's a reason why God spends so much time speaking and saying things in the Bible. And the last point tonight before we close is this. In everyday life, God empowers the believer, the believer to know things about the future that are not knowable. The, the last part of prophecy is that God reveals to us things about the future that are otherwise not knowable. And God will do that if you have the gift of prophecy. God will, God will give you knowledge of the future that you, you could not know any other way than supernatural revelation. God will do that to you. I will tell you this about, about the gift of prophecy. Sometimes it can be very frightening. I mean, it just, it'll just scare you because you'll be, you'll be going along just doing a menial task, you know, sweeping the floor, weed-eating the yard, doing whatever, and all of a sudden God will say something to you about the future, and it's like, whoa, you know. This, this whole survival bushcraft thing that I've gotten into over the past 8, 10 years, this whole thing was prompted in my heart by a simple word, prophetic word from God. And it was this. We believe the Assemblies of God's official position on the rapture is that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, which means we're going to be out of here before the tribulation starts. But the Holy Spirit spoke to me one day and said, look across history. Just because you're going to escape the tribulation doesn't mean there won't be very hard days. I took that seriously. And that's why I know the things I know. That's why I know what kind of bark in the eastern woodlands makes the strongest cordage. That's why I know how to make a fire with two sticks. I could go on and on. Because I know that the potential is that any day, any moment, our lives could radically change. I'm not trying to frighten you, but we're all frightened by the future because we don't know it to an extent. But let me tell you something. There's great peace and laying your head on your pillow at night and knowing if I wake up in the morning to nuclear war, I know what to do. No amount of money in the world can buy that. And you can have that. And God will prepare you for that. But so when you ask for the gift of prophecy, be prepared for what God wants to show you because it can rattle your cage. All right. So tonight we talked about healing, miracles, and prophecy. Let's wrap this up with a real short Q&A. Who's got a question, a comment, or an observation that you'd like to make?